Welcome to Community Voice. And today we have Arthur O'Connor on the line from Foggy Heldsburg. Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Thomas. Yeah, so I just want to jump right into your background. And I have a number of topics that I want to explore, but let's start by laying the groundwork by talking a little bit about where you're from and how you got to where you currently are. Because I know you've been on a long and kind of winding journey to get to Northern California. Yes. Quick answer. I grew up in a country town in Australia called Mildura, which is about six hours inland from Melbourne. Uh, a little bit of wine production there. And at an early age, decided I wanted to be a winemaker and spent my whole high school time working to that end. Ended up at winemaking college, got various jobs in very good wineries in Australia. I was, I was fortunate. I did my 10,000 hours in rapid time at probably the fastest growing wine company at that time in Australia called Rosemount Estates, probably one of the fastest in the world at the time. So I was very fortunate. But I realized early on to be a good winemaker or a great winemaker, one had to understand viticulture as well because the grapes obviously impact wine quality. And also I saw very clearly that one had to understand business. I saw quite a lot of times where accountants were influencing winemaking style, e.g. you can't have that many barrels for a certain wine because uh, it costs too much. So I was always interested in economics and I started doing my MBA. So I did my MBA over a period of about eight years via correspondence uh, a lot of the time as I was traveling the world working north and southern hemisphere. Ended up in California running vineyards, converting them to organic, slowly getting bigger and bigger projects. Then went back to Australia to run a, a large winery for back then it was South Corp that became Foster's. I was in charge of uh, wineries in Western Australia, all of Victoria, Tasmania. And a job came up in Cordonu in Spain so as director of winemaking for the oldest company in Spain, a 450-year-old company. So I was director of winemaking there for 10 years, running 10 wineries in Spain, one in Argentina and one in Napa, California. That's great. And you've kind of traversed several different areas, obviously regions that produce wine, but also different, I think, areas culturally throughout the world. And we'll get into that. So so could you walk us through how the vineyard management process and I guess more broadly also the wine business works and then maybe also how it's different throughout these different regions and parts of the world that you've run vineyards? Uh, it's, you know, the difference between Argentina or Mendoza and Argentina and Napa is vast, Australia vast, and then Spain vast differences in terms of culture, which we can talk about a bit later. But in terms of the business of growing grapes, it's pretty straightforward. You've got different weather conditions that impact it, obviously. The mountains in Argentina impact, you know, the Andes are a very strong influence in Mendoza, as is San Francisco Bay in Napa. So you've got this weather component that's always interesting and fascinating to me along with soil. That then gets translated into winemaking and every every step of the process you come across in the grape production and winemaking is a decision point that leads to a different end result, which I, I find fascinating and always come back to it questioning the decision you make at some point at pruning. Did I prune, you know, did we leave too many buds on or should we left more on? Harvesting, did we pick too early? Did we pick too late? Not, not second guessing, but just coming back to try and figure out, you know, a constant improvement, which is probably really where I focus 
my attention on is how can we do it better? How can we pull it apart and put it back together differently? And I think it is a metaphor for a good metaphor for all business and all production and even for service-oriented industries is how can we do it better and just just coming back and pulling it to pieces, as I say. So winemaking in different regions, there's cultural differences and there's, um, you know, working, for example, for one of the oldest companies in the world came with a lot of this is tradition and this is how we do things. Breaking down that barrier, uh, that was a, a, a really interesting one, which we can talk about if you want. Yeah, and I assume that as with kind of many agriculture businesses, this business involves periods where managing a large labor force is a huge part of your job. And then also more quiet periods where the seasonal workers are kind of less part of your job. So could you walk us through kind of a a day in your life? Well, in managing a, a vineyard or winery, so let's say vineyard, obviously early start, just to typically beat the heat is important. And when running vineyards, you're farming, so you're subject to the weather. But there's obviously every month you have different processes that need to get done. So there's those tasks which pretty much get identified on a monthly basis and then broken down into smaller tasks and then just go at them. But in terms of you know managing people, I think that's really where you get back to because in the end, you're managing people and trying to get them to do it, whether that's one person running 10 acres or whether that's 50 people running or 20 people running 500 acres. It's a challenge. So, you know, you have to communicate clearly with them, understand what you're trying to achieve. And I think agriculture does have a big need for people at the harvesting time but the rest of the time is fairly constant these days it used to be more seasonal i think but the difficulty with hiring seasonal employees means that it's often better to keep good employees and find things for them to do in the quieter times of the year or push you know to smooth out the uh, work requirements so there's not such peaks and valleys and if you can do some of that smoothing you get to keep good people yeah, and making it so you, you smooth out in terms of kind of necessity to have workers and making it less seasonal in order to give that person more of a full-time job and therefore retain them to keep quality people. I, I think that kind of hits home for many of the small businesses that we're a part of. If you're going to pay someone more, you're you're willing to do it given the quality of those employees. And something I noticed coming from Australia first to California to run vineyards in the late 90s, I came here and I was shocked by the amount of people that were employed. And at that point, it was about six, minimum wage was around $6 an hour, which I couldn't believe. And what I saw was because labor was cheap, people were doing inefficient activities in terms of labor. In Australia, labor was two to three times as much. And the efficiency of the use of the label was far superior. So there's a lot of mechanization in Australia. Very few vineyards are hand harvested in Australia. It's typically all machine harvested. But in California at that time, in the coastal areas, there's very little going on. Basically, no machine harvesting, but majority was hand harvested, which just astounded me. And the same went all the way through. There just wasn't very smart usage of labor. And it was, in my view, it disrespected as with anything when you don't pay for it, like, you know, uh, water out of the tap we think is free, so we disrespect it. Until you have to pay for it, then it becomes uh, more valued. That's right. So let me actually jump into something, and, and I think you touched on this a little bit. It 
seems as though an industry is old as managing vineyards and, and just the winery industry in general would kind of have echoing through the centuries learned ways of doing business. And, and you talked about how see high labor prices force people to kind of look into our incorporating more machines. But do you think the winemaking business is more kind of art than science looking towards the past? Or do you think it's reaching a stage where disruption or innovation is starting to permeate it? Hmm. I, I would like to break it down into two parts. There's often a question on art versus science. I, I don't see it so much as art versus science. I think it's art and science. So as with anything that we do, management's a good example. There's a neocortex part that occurs and a limbic part of the brain that kicks into gear. Limbic part being a more creative side of the brain and the neocortex being what we used to probably call the left side of the brain, which is more about control. So in winemaking, like everything, you need to have control. You need to have systems in place, systems to manage finance, systems to ensure that dissolved oxygen levels are correct, bottles of wine do not ferment when they go into the market. So there's some really basic things that have to get done extremely well, and I'd call that the science part of it. And then you have what I call the limbic part of the brain is the uh, creative side that needs to get into play. And the only way that you can engage the limbic brain is that the neocortex needs to shut down. And that's, you know, getting, getting it quiet and letting it feel safe so that it can let the limbic brain start to be creative. So I think that's a really interesting thing I've learned over the years is trying to balance those two things out. Another way I've seen it is is about balancing the forces of chaos and control. And you need both of those in any business to do something that's exceptional. If you're just going to work on control and be led by accountants, then you're going to... Um, typically neocortex, then you're going to end up with a fairly boring product. And so to make an exceptional product, it requires both. Being involved in companies that pretty much are all creative, all limbic brain and no systems, and they are chaotic to work in and they just don't function. There's no consistency of product. The desire to make excellent products can't be achieved because there's no consistency. Things become oxidized. There's some basics that are not done, basic housekeeping. So hopefully that is a long way of answering the art versus science question. Yeah. And can I follow up and ask, how do you institute in a business or in kind of a collective psyche with both management and I think employees, kind of a strategic vision that incorporates both, as you were saying, that neocortex, that rational order, and then that kind of chaotic, maybe more emotional limbic side of the equation? What are some almost like institutions that you put into place to make sure both of those thrive? Yeah, I, I break it down into neocortex, simplify neocortex activities like systems, finance, and communications. Because uh, so systems being whatever systems that are that you're working with in your particular field, make sure that you've got great systems, you have KPIs in place and focus on the KPIs, not the whole system, but get the system reporting the KPIs to you. So in my world, for example, that would be 
DG, one large winery we had, was running 20 tankers of juice a day, which is a lot of juice, out of one winery to another winery. And full analysis, which is a panel of 10 to 12 different analytics on each panel of juice. But it was just a a flood of data. So just very simple on Excel, setting up conditional formatting. We could see from across the the room a red cell and we go and focus on that but if you could look across a room at a, at a large flat screen tv with all this data on it and see no reds then i'm fine i don't need to worry about it that's a good system that doesn't take my time finance you know always getting bitten by finance but finance is can be quite simple it's all about profit is you know costs revenue must be growing faster than cost and if you can get that right it gets a lot simpler make sure your rois are correct look at opportunity cost, risk management, but set up systems for that so that you don't have surprises. Communication, set up good weekly, monthly, quarterly meetings, check in with people, communicate clearly with them, and set up rules about emails or social media and how you communicate because it can eat into your time, as everybody knows. So I think you have to be super disciplined to get this stuff tight and then make it even, keep fighting to make it tighter. How can you cut it down further? not add stuff. I've been involved in large wineries where the quality systems that were put in place drove the whole winery, but they did not guarantee great wine. All they guaranteed was that things were getting done the same way, but there was nobody there who was questioning whether that's what they should be doing. Then once you've got that in place, start focusing you know, on relationships. I think relationships are key to great teams and getting confidence and building trust. For me, the other one I focus on is relevance. I've become uh, very uh, enamored with relevance in recent times because I think if whatever you're doing is not relevant, then you're not going to be successful. Really question how to become more relevant, and that means uh, instituting very good practices on learning, capturing learning, trialing that's relevant to what you're trying to achieve, not irrelevant, and then circling back by excellence and really spending time in the excellence realm, trying to question everything and challenge everything you do to continue to improve it. So that's sort of how I go about it. Yeah, I can definitely see the the MBA kind of peering out there. Uh, that, was, that was great. So what I want to do is give our listeners some background. When we had originally spoke, you told me that one of the things you're proudest of in terms of kind of career accomplishments had been your ability to be a mentor to many of the people that you've hired or have worked with, both kind of formally, informally. And just to kind of get, I think, an indication from the other side of that relationship, um, I wanted to read a letter that one of your mentees had actually sent to you. So, Arthur... I started walking next to you here in Artiza Winery. Today I say goodbye, also from this fantastic winery. Yesterday I received the news of your departure from Codornu Group. I'm not going to lie to you, Arthur. I lost a tear. Losing you, it not only means to stop having an incredible leader, losing you is to stop following an enviable person. You have been in almost all my professional stages, and in each one of them, You have given me wings to fly, strength to jump, and solidity to be able to resist. Arthur, you are a great leader. I know that in my life, I will have many bosses, but few will trust me as much as you have. Thank you. 
I know that everything will go very well for you in this new stage because you continue having your great team close by. Ellen, who's your wife. And she continues, remember that in the Pinedes, there will always be someone willing to learn from you. Do not change, never, Arthur. And that was from Ellie Figueres. Yep. Obviously, you had a massive impact on her, both as a mentor and, and what's even more striking is I don't think people, and it's unfortunate, normally associate their boss with a lot of the things that she was saying about you and the experience working with you. Could you tell us a little bit about Ellie and what really cultivated such, I think, a flowering and successful mentorship relationship with her? Well, I let me say, I when I went to Cordenu in Spain, as I said, the oldest company in Spain, I had 10 wineries, and then Argentina and Napa, I was in, directly involved in winemaking. But the team there needed to change. And so within 12 months, I changed eight of the 10 leaders and brought in a whole new team. Uh, and they changed because of retirements and so forth. But in the end, there was a massive change occurred, which was a, a big deal in an old company. But what I was looking for is people who had a different vision. I, f- I found people that had a view of Spain was quite insular, which I, I sort of taken back to the Franco years. And back in during the Franco years, it wasn't normal for people to leave Spain and go and work in another country to gain experience, for example, like uh, we would in Australia. And so I found a lot of people who'd really never spent much time outside of Spain. And that was amazing. So I I was in, at Artesa as I first arrived, which is in California, and there was two women who were working there in the cellar who graduated and worked a few harvests and it was very clear just you know I'm always looking around at people and how they fit in and how the team works and I think that's your job as a manager particularly as a director just overseeing watching trying to find great people so probably the one of my favorite quotes is a quote from Bill Hewitt I think is attributed to which is that your rate of growth is limited only by your ability to hire incredible people and so it's always been an interest of mine. And, and I saw these two people, uh, Ellie and Laura Turrigant, working there and in the cellar. I was looking at them in, because I was in need of people back in Spain. And so I started asking people about them. And it became very apparent that everybody thought they were incredible people. They're the smartest people there, the hardest working and the easiest to get along with. It's like, okay. So I spoke to both of them and asked them to contact me when they got back to Spain. When they did, uh, I didn't actually have jobs for them, but I found jobs for them and created jobs for them, both of them. And one was in a winery first up. Lara went to a winery to work as a junior winemaker. And Ellie, I had created a job for in the office as helping to bring in, start to build these new systems up I was trying to build up. With a vision that I'd, I knew that there'd be a role come up for her at some point within a short period of time that she could sit in, so could move into. And so that's sort of how it worked. Ellie then moved as assistant winemaker. Eventually, I had to fight for her. That was where I think I gained a lot of respect from her is I had to fight for her every step of the way because I knew she was incredible as a communicator and one of the smartest people that you've met. The same went for Lara. And we, 
I had to fight all the way because the old company wanted different people. It probably would have favoured maybe more males as, a, as winemakers as well, which I had no interest in. I was looking for the best people for the job. So Ellie worked up through the ranks and by the time she was about 28, uh, I think it was, I put her in charge of one of the biggest wineries, a 30,000-ton winery, a very complex winery, and uh, fought for her to take that position to the point that in the end I said, it's my call and it's, uh, I, I'll live by it and, and it worked, of course. And uh, she thrived and did an incredible job there. So it's about finding great people, I think, and it's about looking at their development. And, you know, as with any delegation, if you're delegating to somebody, make sure they're capable of doing it. Otherwise, you've failed as a manager. And I sort of have a knack of finding good people. And Ellie was a good example. Ellie's one of 10 changes. But during a 10-year period, when I first arrived, there was 20 uh, winemaking staff through all the wineries and two females, I think, maybe three. By the time I left 10 years later, there's 25 winemakers and 16 female. And that was an interesting piece of learning. I didn't specifically go out of my way to do that. It's just that it worked out that way. When I went back to look at how that worked, uh, you know, we can talk about that. Yeah, there's, I think, two things I wanted to dissect in what you said. One of them is for most people in kind of an internal biased way, if it's interviewing or selecting for promotion, we tend to choose people who are who are like us, which explains why many industries, right, there's kind of a solidified hierarchy and, and people kind of choose people who went to similar schools or are similar genders, have similar backgrounds. And it seems as though you're not actively going out of your way to mentor women and you're not actively going out of your way to promote women because they're women. It it seems as though from what you had said is you just wanted the best people. And in these cases, they happen to be women. How did you get away from choosing that kind of internal bias towards, I'm going to choose someone just like me? Was there something that opened your eyes or had you just always kind of managed businesses that way? Good question. I think I've always managed businesses that way. There was a point at the winery I ran in Australia before moving to Spain where there was six winemakers, five of them were women. I was the only one who wasn't. So there's maybe there's a tendency there for some reason. I don't know why. I may say that was not a balanced team and didn't work that well. You know, it's about creating balance in your teams and understanding that. You, you spoke about hiring your same personality. That's something I'm being fairly aware of trying not to do. When I went to Spain, I realized that I was out of my cultural depth, that each region within Spain, when I say Spain, because we're in Australia, California, for example, we have a a belief of what culture looks like. For example, in the US, what culture is. When you get into Europe, there's far greater differences within a country. So Rioja is very different from Catalonia, which is very different from Andalusia. And I started to realize that quickly, that pretty much you're dealing with different countries. And I think you can see that, you know, a little, it's what I like about the US a bit is the US is a, a group of 
micro little countries all jammed together and it's it's a pretty interesting mix so understanding that i went out of my way to hire people who were from those regions that we were operating in and that was critical to me didn't achieve it all the time but kind of did when it comes to why i ended up with maybe more women in the team than men the fact is that women in the workforce have a harder time of it than men all of us have to commit to gender parity in the workplace, uh, equality. And, you know, I realized quickly I needed to hire a bunch of people relatively quickly. And when I started going looking for resumes, if you find, you know, at the moment in today's society, and it's, and may I say this is totally wrong and it shouldn't exist, but I do believe it's a good workaround, is that in today's society, if you end up with resumes with male and female resumes with the same skill set and the same experience level personality wise they're similar or they're going to fit with your team and the makeup i will take the woman every time because the woman to get to that same position in her career she's had to work significantly harder to get there because she's had to pass so many barriers that don't exist for men that we don't realize and it's I'm amazed at why we still have this, but it's a, the reality. So I think as a manager, it's an easy workaround. I guess I have a female bias that way is because they've had to work so much harder to get there. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I wanted to talk a little bit, if you want to get into policy as well, at kind of the, the micro level for running a business. And you mentioned when kind of talking about the gender gap, obviously, right, a quirk of biology women will leave the workforce, have children, and then when they want to come back, their resume is inevitably kind of stale. And in order to find a job, you need a refreshed work history. And that's almost impossible because you won't be able to find a job with a stale resume. And and you've obviously kind of made that a, a key determinant in hiring for you and saying that, okay, a, a woman who's reached a similar level with everything against them, you know, running against the wind. Well, you know, maybe a male counterpart has had the wind at their back. I'm going to choose the person who has delivered that passion, effort, ambition, hard work, you know, you name it, smarts. I wanted to ask, what are ways that business owners, you know, through your experience or maybe just ideas can help to remedy this in terms of clearing that gap? Sure. Probably two things I'd suggest people look at that I I have is well firstly let me say you know I went through college winemaking college with 50 50 women to men and I didn't think that was unusual I thought that was entirely normal and I got into the workplace and that wasn't the case which amazed me then I started to see some of my friends go into the workplace female friends having some issues particularly when they went to have children because you're in a production industry. So you need to be there every morning at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. You can't come in at various hours and have flexible hours when you're running a, a very tight production system. So it gets a lot harder for working mothers when, you know, you get into production. So that's a little bit of background. And what I started to see is I, we ended up in Spain ended hiring quite a lot of young women and I, 
did something that I was probably told not to do in uh, Australia in human resource times. We had a very easy conversation about women in our team and, and whether they were thinking of having children at some point in the future and or not. But it, what we ended up doing by having that conversation is what I started to realize, we need to prepare ourselves for this instead of being surprised. And so many people were blindsided by it in Spain. Go, oh, gee, they're away uh, on maternity leave. How terrible. It's like, it's not terrible. This is a manageable event. It shouldn't be a surprise. So what I ended up doing, and I spoke earlier about having Ellie Figueres there, was creating the excess capacity for that event. So if somebody was to take maternity leave or, again, paternity leave, which is coming, fortunately, and people need to manage for this. So build a team that has capacity. A lot of times in in the agricultural business and in the wine business, we run along very tight and lean all the way through the year. Then harvest comes, we expect people to work extra hours, working their 12 hours a day plus six, seven days a week. We really ask them to work hard, which is hard to do for working mothers. So why are we doing that? In my view, it's because we've under-resourced the team and we're asking, we put a lot of stress on the team and you go back and you go, well, what if we had more people? What if during the quieter times of year, we dedicated those people to research, to the art side of the business, improving our relevance, getting out on the street, helping sell the wine, getting out ahead of the competition? And what I realized is by having this extra person or two in the team, it enabled us to get ahead of the curve, way ahead of the competition. Going back to that Bill Hewitt quote about your rate of growth limited by how many great people you can employ. And so why wait until you have a shortage of people because somebody's left and they've gone somewhere else or they've gone to, they've taken time off from maternity, paternity, and then all of a sudden you're short and you ask everybody else in the team to cover for them. It's ridiculous. What I think is far better is have a little extra capacity Honestly, it doesn't cost that much to have one extra person there. And that extra person can float and get to know all the different parts of the business and can be super productive for you when they finally step into a role, like eventually Ellie stepped into a role. That's one of the hacks I particularly like, and it really challenges you about your team. Don't think that cutting costs by dropping employees down to the bare minimum is a smart move. It hurts your business in so many ways far better to have an extra talented person within your team who'll challenge your other team members and or if somebody's failing, you feel more comfortable with getting rid of them because you can drop somebody in straight away. Now, the other and to that end also what I came across is a very good way to hire fantastic people is hiring mothers who have taken leave to raise children, which I think is awesome. I happen to love babies, so I'm super excited when people say they're having babies because I want to encourage that as much as possible. So trying to find part-time mums to get them back into the workforce are the, some of the best employees I've ever come across because they come to work, they get their job done, they they just solve problems and get out of there instead of wasting time and they're so productive and, and if you show – if you show confidence in them and trust in them and build that relationship, they'll pay it back 
tenfold. And so, you know, when they choose to come back full time to work, you've also got the inside running on them if there's a position open for them. So I, I think it's a, it's a really easy hack that can help get your business further ahead and help women get further advanced because that hole in their resume is a tough one to fill. And so I think just keeping, enabling them to keep current, even if it's one day a week for half part time or something, enables them to get back in the workforce, enables you to get a great employee and get a lot of work done. And I guarantee that they'll work a lot more hours than they charge you for because they, they, they get stuff done. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's really helpful, and and both of those are surprisingly easy to do. It doesn't require a magic wand of kind of a, a policymaker. You know, one of the things I, I just wanted to point out that struck me in what you just said is that running or, or lacing through your points from you know mentorship to tackling the gender gap, it seems as though that thread is connected by a little bit of reinforcement and just giving someone some of that positive you know feedback positive confidence to step up take a role and feel comfortable in a position and feel comfortable in maybe a job that they may not whether it's their their age experience that sort of thing and really as as kind of a mentor and a business owner i think you've kind of exemplified that and you're putting people that you think deserve positions into those positions and you're not allowing kind of other maybe more superficial attributes to kind of hold that back and, and that little bit of confidence that that gives the people you know that probably helps and aids them as well as their own innate talent to succeed in those roles if i if i could one, one of the things i'd add to that is that i i think there's a, an important point here the difference between gender equality and gender equity my take on that is gender equity says let's create great respectful outcomes for everybody and so for women that may be a different outcome than for men but it's about changing your chip a little and not sort of applying your male uh, thinking process to trying to help a female navigate this it's a, it's a different chip and just trying to be respectful of that and empathetic to that of each and it really is every individual you work for is be work with or work for is being empathetic to their needs and respecting their needs and trying to figure out how you can weave that into your company and your business and as soon as you do you end up with incredibly dedicated employees and that's kind of what the Ellie's the thing that you read out earlier is pretty much where that comes from is just figuring out how this person works and what's going to work for them and, and how it can best serve your business. And it's super powerful. Yeah. And, and to jump off that, I think most people when starting a new job or entering a company feel as though the next large step for them is to kind of contour themselves, personality, work style to that business. I don't think it's ever incumbent upon the business to welcome someone in in terms of contour the company and the culture and character around that person. You're totally right. That's that's really the opposite that should be going on. Mm -hmm. The manager needs to find out how this person ticks and how they can fit in and what they can add and how they can challenge the organization. 
And if they're not going to challenge the organisation in some way and they're just going to sit in there and, do- and dovetail straight in, they're probably not a good hire. Yeah, that's a great place to close that discussion. Let me jump into now kind of a some rapid fire questions and, and they don't need super long answers, just kind of some of them are, are fun, maybe about wine and you know more towards the end probably require you to reach into your experience and, and what you're seeing on the ground. But the first question, France, Spain, Australia, Argentina, or California, who has the best wine? Uh, that's a tough one because I love champagne. Uh, champagne's on the top of my list, so that's, <laughs> that probably says France. However, I will say, it, just like people, you really have to go deeper and get to understand them and the, the wines and the country to understand the wines. And there's great wines, just like great people everywhere. Yeah, no, totally inappropriate question that you managed to handle extremely well. Next question. How will your business be different in 10 years? I think the main thing we should see is greater gender equality, uh, that we're not 50-50 is just an embarrassment and a shame on everybody. And we all have to work to that. And as soon as that occurs, you're just going to create more powerful businesses. Mm. And then final question. Is the American dream still alive? Yes, Absolutely. I think we need to always remember that sometimes you've got to go backwards before you go forwards. Arthur O'Connor, thank you for jumping on the podcast. A pleasure. It was great to chat. Thanks for having me along and uh, uh, good luck with your project. Thank you. Thank you.